Manage Self Lead Others podcast. My name is Nina Sunday, and in this episode, we're joined by Dr. Stuart Brody, founder of Integrity Intensive, a consulting firm for decision making and leadership. He's author of The Law of Small Things Creating a Habit of Integrity in a Culture of Mistrust. It's a book that evolved from many years observing good people trapped in our culturally acceptable yet, Stuart argues, dysfunctional understanding of integrity. Welcome, Dr. Stewart. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thank you very much. Well, the first thing I want to do is thank you for elevating me to the status of a doctor. I do hold a doctorate, but in the United States, lawyers, although technically doctors, are never referred to that way. So I definitely appreciate this. I'm interested, why did you title your book, The Law of Small Things? Well, it occurred to me over the course of my career in, in both law and also in politics that when people started breaching the rules of conduct, let's call it integrity, on small things and in small ways, they started down a slippery slope which yielded much larger uh, breaches, uh, big things. So it became clear to me that a principle of, let's say, ethical practice or practice of integrity was that if you don't adhere to obligations, responsibilities in small ways, then you're probably not going to be ready to do so on, on big things and in big ways. So you've, you've, coined the phrase integrity quotient. It's another way of describing IQ. And at integrityintensive.com, you've got a quiz that people can do. And I've done the quiz. And it's very interesting to see that you have a lot of um, illustrate or dilemmas from life and from work. Things like telling white lies to get out of a, out of a lunch appointment or you know getting out of uh, agreements that you've made. Do people share with you a surprise that, um, you know, telling a white lie is, uh, is, is a breach of integrity? Yes. Uh, a lot of people are surprised uh, by that question and also by my belief that if you, if you start lying, even white lies on small things like that, that a process begins of habituation into avoiding truthfulness. And once that starts, it yields bigger things. But what's interesting, I think, is that people will understand that there's generally a duty of truthfulness. So even though many will tell white lies and they'll concede that they do, they'll answer that question, quote, correctly, because they know it's not the right thing to do. They know they're being lazy. They know that they're being self-interested in coming up with an excuse to spare someone's feelings when really it's sparing their own embarrassment. It's avoiding the obligation to really come up with a truthful uh, explanation of why you're canceling uh, a lunch date. I, I use the example also that, that if a country, a culture is um, condones the telling of lies in simple ways like that, then it's kind of ironic uh, to expect their political leadership to tell the truth, yet we do. 
So it's kind of like a double standard that we somehow maintain. Uh, we can do it, but if others do it, especially people in big, you know, important positions, well, that's that's wrong. But what we do is okay. So that's an issue of of integrity that we can get into. In the quiz, one of the workplace examples was that a manager confides in you that they're going to be laying off uh, one of your colleagues and you happen to know that that college is about to embark on a new mortgage for a new house that they're buying and you're concerned that this if they don't have a, a job that that might create financial disaster for them that's a dilemma uh, you have to honor the fact that your boss has confided in you and yet how do you indicate to that person that perhaps taking that uh, financial step is not a wise move at this time. Uh, how would you uh, how how would you answer that one? Okay, so the first thing we need to do, I think, when we're answering any hypothetical, is to understand the context of the answer. What what is the structure of looking at it? Now, a lot of people will say, "Well, I I would I would lose my job rather than than fail to come through for a friend or a coworker." I'll tell the boss I'm not going to do it. I am going to, I'm not, I'm not going to not tell my friend. So that's a tough position. Some people say that. Whether they do that or not in real life is a completely different matter. And others say, well, I, I will uh, follow what the boss says because he's my boss and they pay my paycheck. When I say let's understand the context, it means what are the inherent promises that flow from that situation? Integrity, as the way I've defined it, is really the, the skill of identifying promises, the promises you make explicitly and the ones that are implied in the conduct of your everyday life. And those are harder to see, but most of the promises we have, what we would regard as what constitutes integrity is implied promises. Now in the boss's case, the boss is making you explicitly promise not to reveal confidential information, which they probably never should have revealed, but did. Okay, so you're in that spot. So that's a duty of loyalty to your boss. And it's an explicit undertaking. To your friend, there's no such explicit duty, but there's an implied duty of truthfulness. Now, why? Because your friend, your coworker reasonably expects that information of that magnitude would be shared so he doesn't make a big mistake. Now you're on the horns of a dilemma. You've mm. got an explicit duty and you've got an implied duty, one of loyalty, one of truthfulness. Those are the duties that always come up at work and they're always clashing. What do you do? Well, unlike some of the people, Nina, you know, who would say, well, I'm going to tell the truth no matter what, or I'm going to be loyal no matter what. The people who are skillful at integrity, at the practice of integrity, because it is a practice, practice of a skill, like any other skill. Well, it's no, not black and white as that, is it? No black, yeah. Right, right, right. If you approach integrity as a black and white endeavor, I, I dare say you're really missing the point of what integrity is, because all you're doing really is substituting boisterous conviction 
you know, the certainty of your belief uh, for deliberation and for careful weighing and balancing of competing interests. The people we respect in our, in our world and at work and in our lives are the ones who know how to balance competing values, competing duties. And that's what integrity is. I would also argue that that manager was not fulfilling that person's duty as a manager because certainly there's a protocol around laying someone off. You don't uh, get someone else to confide in them just because you feel it's a weight on your shoulders. You've now handed this uh, this bomb that this grenade that's going to go off to another person. And it's like, well, now, now where are they left? They're left with the, the monkey on their shoulder. So let's say in that example, the boss, the, the employer says, I'm so sorry. I never should have put you in this position. I'm, I, you know, that was a breach. I breached my integrity. Um, but still you can't say anything. And, and I, I, I think, don't we, aren't we all in that situation at one time or another, you know, the boss kind of blows it or we as bosses have blown it and we, and we just, we kind of breach uh, a reasonable expectation of an employee, which means we breached integrity where there's a reasonable expectation that's breached. That's a breach of integrity. And, and there's also this, uh, the, th the power of groupthink that can happen in, in the workplace where people don't speak up. Now, while sometimes it's politically uh, safe to not say what you really think, depending on how you think it's going to be received, there's a perfect example from a few years ago with the Volkswagen company when they were found out they were trying to cheat in, uh, diesel in, in government um, tests on emissions by putting in some software that was designed to cheat the government tests. Now, it went back to uh, uh, soul searching within the company around how is it possible that project managers and engineers went along with such what now is, 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 a, is a piece of folly because uh, they were fined billions of euros and I think someone even, some senior leader even went to prison at some point. And of course, the VW company had to shrink its workforce by thousands in order to say, we're not going to do the diesel anymore. We're going to go back to the drawing board and design an electric car and they will come through even better. But there was this whole thing about we need people to speak up when breaches of the law are being contemplated. So we don't go down that track where it becomes a, a whole um, calamity for, uh, you know, a calamity for the company. Is, yeah. I mean, it, so how is it that groupthink can actually uh, get land companies in hot water? Well, you know, it's a great question and has so many dimensions to it. What, you know, groupthink, it, it, as I think you're using the term, or as certainly as I understand it, is is not an excuse for individual responsibility. Now, it may be a, a reason why you don't step forward, but learning how to step forward is a, a, a responsibility that we all have. It's, an, it's a matter of integrity. Why? Because there is an, there's either an explicit or implied duty of truthfulness. Now, in that case, 
the duty of truthfulness was very hard to exercise because you're dealing with peer pressure, engineers who were covering every, I mean, it, it, it was just a swamp of lies. But what really, I think, surprised everyone who examined it, although it shouldn't be a surprise, is that no one managed to figure out a way of, of getting the truth out. But isn't that the way we deal with much in our lives? We, we have relationships we're not honest about. We tell white lies to friends. We accept discounts that we don't deserve. We maybe take dinners for free from a friend who puts it on an expense account, even though no business was discussed. There, there are so many ways in which we start to hedge, but we keep saying, well, on the important things, we'll be ready. But on the important things, you're, you're suddenly there, be like being uh, at a stage, you know, uh, at Carnegie Hall or Covent Garden or in Sydney at the Opera House, and you haven't practiced the score. Well, you can't expect to sing. So that's so, why it's the law of small things, because if we uh, turn a blind eye to the little things in our life that we skate over, that we uh, either through laziness or you go, well, everybody else is doing it, you know, so that, that's not really an excuse. So you're suggesting that integrity is a practice that you exercise and that you become better at it because you make sure that the little things uh, are done according to integrity. Is that? That's a great point. Thank you. Because if you can't figure out how to tell a friend that you had a better offer and that you're sorry, but you'd really hope that they'll uh, release you from your obligation and schedule another time, if you can't figure out how to do that and would rather habitually, right, truthfully, how are you going to sit in a room with fellow engineers who are conspiring to uh, you know, to, to put a deception world out worldwide, uh, how are you going to do it without, without practice? I, I, you know, Nina, I actually had my class uh, do, um, uh, do a kind of play acting of that uh, scenario, of that dilemma. And they each took different parts, the head of the division, the head of the company, the, the software engineers and so forth. And what kept coming up was that not only didn't they want to take a risk of their own economic uh, detriment, but they couldn't figure out how to tell the truth. They didn't know where to go. They didn't, they, 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 they didn't know how to language it in a way that could start enlisting their fellow employees. <laughs> you know what, we, you and I were talking before about the mission statement which is the classic example <laughs> of an employer coming in and I hope I'm not going on into something that you wanted to do, but I thought this was relevant because I've seen it so many times in my life as a lawyer, the, the company president comes in and she says, I've got the greatest mission statement ever. I wrote it myself and, and then says, well, what do you think? Well, who's going to stand up? But that goes against best practice in the sense that you always, you go to your people with questions rather than with answers. And you might say, look, I've got the start of a mission plan here, but let's take this, let's pull it apart and let's recreate it together or, or create it together. So that's what creates ownership. So managers now have to understand 
don't go to your people with all the answers. Get the questions started so that then you can actually map it out. And in my book, I've got a chapter about leading from the front and always having a little conference table with a flip chart or a whiteboard and just just record uh, what's coming up in the conversation so people can see in 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 their in front of their very eyes these are my ideas and it's 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 a clever manager that makes their team feel as if they came up with what you've kind of uh, been steering them towards but not so not obviously of course but it's allowing for the fact that there are things that your people will come up with that you never in a million years would have come up with yourself so it's the it's the uh what the, the sum of uh the team uh comes up with better ideas than just one person working solo well my experience with the with the workplace and i was an employment lawyer for 30 years is that the, the real difficulties are not with bosses that understand sort of the dynamic between leadership and followership, but are sort of wedded to the old command model. And that's not because they subscribe to the theory, but because their egos and their personality just drives them to that, but it drives all of us. You know, on the one hand, we have our egos or whatever the source is of, of a kind of um, certainty about the way we want things done, the way people should act. And they're not reasonable expectations, but they're expectations. I mean, expectations could be reasonable and they can be unreasonable. But an employee has to deal with both. And reasonable expectations need to be um, adhered to fulfilled. Unreasonable ones can't be. I mean, they are because we're in tough spots. On a, uh, a boss, for instance, who says, I just don't want you to report this or, or hold it back for two weeks. Okay, well, that boss is demanding a duty of loyalty that is misplaced because it violates the duty of truthfulness. Okay, we all know those things. The question is, well, how do you deal with that you are a boss exacting loyalty when there's a duty of truthfulness competing with it and um, that's where integrity comes in and that's why experience or practice is so important because you learn how to express it you know from what my experience is in my country and i think around the world people associate integrity with the boisterous assertion of conviction and I don't know where people get that. It's, it's derived from the strength of a belief. You strongly believe something, so it must be right. But integrity is not that. It's actually the skill in questioning your belief and monitoring it. So I think that's what you were talking a little bit about. That's right. And you were talking a little bit about the small things. Now, do, do people share with you the things that uh, annoy them that, you know, they uh show integrity but you know look at the rest of the world they do this and i'll give you my example one of the things that i pride myself on is always returning a book that i've borrowed and i'm i do not own a book that i've borrowed i, I don't still have in my library a book that i've borrowed because i make a point of getting it back to that person within a timely uh space of time but i notice that if someone says can i borrow this book in my head i say 
I have to be prepared to never see this book again because I don't recall ever getting a book back that I've loaned out. And I'm willing to say no if I think I need to see this book back in my library. So I'm not, I'm going to say no. So is that, is that, do other people share that particular example or is that just me? <laughs> That's a good example because the reason why it's a good example is because it, uh, it, it indicates the two ways that we make promises. If we take out a library book, there's a date certain, let's call it April 15th, and you have to return it by then. So there's an explicit promise that you will, you may not pay a fine so forth, but there's essentially a promise. Yes, I take it out. But if you take a book, borrow a book, your friend says, here, borrow it, and doesn't say anything about the day of return, well, that's an implied promise, okay? You don't state it explicitly. But, but I think what you're bringing up, and I have the same issue, I, I find myself always returning a book, but looking for books that I've you know, I've lent out and people not returning it is something about it. But, you know, that's kind of like the dilemma of integrity. If you're not paying attention to things like that, well, that's a kind of habituation. I was watching one of your videos and you talked a little bit about, and it's a, it's a documentary that I saw, it was the climbing of Mount Everest and the whole politics around that and the fact that, you know, some people... Um, well, some people just can't make it through oxygen starvation or hypothermia. And the story goes, it was one particular day that 40 uh, uh, climbers passed by someone that was sitting in the snow, unable to go forward. And all they did was maybe offer them a little bit of oxygen or offer, offer that person a blanket. But no one took ownership of the fact that this person was in trouble they were so focused on them getting to the summit that day because the weather's right and the summer you know the date of the year is right they didn't want to abandon their own climb but what actually happened is that person died because 40 people went past not one person took ownership that that person needed to go back to camp no one was the good samaritan to abandon their climb and it resulted in the loss of life. That's a terrible breach of, of integrity. And yet not one person really was totally responsible just because they walked past, but in a sense they were. Yeah. Well, that, that story is very powerful for two important reasons in understanding integrity. Well, the first one is there's no duty to bag a Himalayan peak. That's a self-interest. That's that's a hobby. That's a, something you'd really like to do. Self-achievement. Right. I mean, that that's something that you worked hard for. There's no denying that. Paid a lot of money. But that's not a duty. You know, selfishness, it's a selfish goal. And that's fine. But when it conflicts with duty, self-interest has to be subordinated. Why? Because practice because if you start elevating self-interest above duty which all 40 of them did because after all what is a higher duty than saving a life your own or somebody else's it's the same thing and that's what we see in cultures all across the world so that's the first thing the other thing is 
that if you had asked those climbers, well, what would you do in that situation before they faced it? They would have all said, well, of course, saving a life, because they knew that was the reasonable expectation of any climber. It's an unstated rule or implied promise that life comes first. But in that situation, and that's very revealing to us about the nature of the way we hold integrity. Like we say we'll show up. That's why I wrote the book, The Law of Small Things. We say we'll show up, but do we? You know, do we protest uh, the action of an employer that's, bre that's asserting loyalty at the expense of truthfulness? Do we report on a neighbor when we see domestic violence? Or what about sexual harassment in the workplace? And we don't do it because it's convenient not to. It's in our self-interest not to. But each time we fail to exercise a duty, a little bit of our authenticity, as you call it, but, or integrity, erodes. And that's what integrity is. It's an alignment with who we know ourselves to be. That's what we're aiming for. However you do it, like through scripture, through practice, it's through practice in the workplace, practice in relationships, that's what we're all looking for, alignment with who we really truly know ourselves to be. And when you fail at these duties, that gets eroded and you get further away from that goal. That's why I wrote the book. That, and that, that's, it's just, uh, I'm just thoroughly enjoying immersing myself in this book. And you do talk about the illusion of moral competence is that what you mean when people say, when asked, I say, oh, yes, I would do this. But when put put to the metal, when when in the in the real world, they actually don't do it. They're they're they're, um, they're, they're in denial about their own degree of integrity and moral competence. So one of the illusions of moral competence is that I can do that. That's OK. I'm not hurting anybody or the white lie. That's why they call it white because you remain pure after telling it. <laughs> so it's like, that's funny. And, and so the idea is that doesn't really impact me, even though I've just lied. But, but you, you also uh, mentioned earlier that there are a few ways that you can actually learn to be a better communicator so you don't ever have to tell a white lie, that you either describe it in a certain way or use humor or what were the what were the techniques that you said that you can avoid it being a white lie it goes back to i think the point you made about how to evade group think you can sit there and go there's no way i'm going to deal with this uh, i'm just going to go with the tide i've got a spouse at home with kids i i can't or you can say okay that that's we're talking about economic survival we get that that's that's not a simple self-interest that's survival on the other hand there's a competing reason why i need to express truthfulness i gotta try and so you get into things like saying things indirectly or humor that's a very big one <laughs> you know and i love i do this with my students i have them play act these things and they're geniuses of course they they know what they need to do they need to balance competing interests, but they come up with great ways of doing it. Can you and, give an example? Well, the, you know, with the boss um, who says, don't tell the coworker, even though he's about to lay down, you know, a fortune for a mortgage that he's not going to be able to afford because he's he's terminated or laid off. 
So the students that came up have come up with these ways of saying, well, you know, I get the feeling that things are not really great around here. I, I mean, I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if there was going to be a layoff and, you know, or, and then someone says, well, what, do you know something? So, well, look, I'm just telling you that I get a bad feeling about this thing. I wouldn't make a big commitment. Just think about it. You know, so, and then people, other people say, well, yeah, but you're really telling him, but you're not. You know, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, and, and it's all about your choice of words and uh, doing yeah, it from, okay. a, from a point of view. Is learning, you know, there's their example, like in the white lie situation, which I keep coming back to, you know, if you say to someone directly, I have this offer to have lunch with someone, I've been waiting to do this, this could affect me professionally in a great way. I really would, would appreciate it if we could reschedule, would you release me from this date? Now, my students, I asked them as homework, I said, when you wanna breach a promise and you wanna tell a white lie and not tell the truth, try this, try asking the person, will you release me from my promise? And they all laughed like that was stodgy and old folks, oh, you know, who's that? But they did it. And they came back and they said there was magic in that. That's because very interesting. And and something I've learned, a little phrase that I've learned is the one, would you be willing to? Would you be willing to release me? And somehow just asking if they'd be willing to is actually not asking them, will they? It's asking if they would be willing to. And it's a softer way to ask to be released. But either way, it works. And it's well, all it's being exactly. more intentional with your language. Oh, yeah. So, the, so, you know, that's something that I spend a lot of time on with people, languaging things, because it's a skill. But it has, and I've made this point before, it comes from not, not so much for me being a good person, being intuitive, or being, you know, emotionally intelligent, but it derives from the fundamental responsibility that you have when you, to fulfill a promise, whether it's stated or not. And that is the key to this. Now, I want to urge your um, your viewers to take the quiz because um, I think they'll find it fascinating in the in this you know context because they're going to get some things wrong. They're going to get some things um, that I'll say are not reflective in integrity, but they think might be. I would be fascinated. And when any of your viewers take it, put in the little box that they are taking it because of this show. And then we'll see how yeah. everyone does. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I took it and I must admit there were some interesting dilemmas that were just from daily life. And I was, and it gives you immediate feedback of the answers. And I went, oh, really? Oh, that's the answer. Oh, well, I have to rethink my, uh, what I think is integrity. Look, uh, Stuart, it's been fabulous talking with you today. We could go on for another hour, but uh, time, time has come to, uh, to say goodbye. Thank you so much for your wisdom and uh, your discussion. Uh, we went entered into some deep areas and uh, I think our listeners will find it quite fascinating. A big thank you to our guest this episode, Stuart Broding, whose website integrityintensive.com. You'll find the integrity quiz so you can measure your integrity quotient, your IQ. Uh, thanks for joining us. Remember to subscribe. 
and uh, we look forward to uh, meeting you again next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.